His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord, and He answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. O fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. O come, come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. To cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. <coughs> Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. May God bless this, the reading of His Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we gather together before You, we have raised our voices in song, uniting our voices with those saints who are gathered around the world to sing Your praises uniting our voices with the saints who have gone before us into glory and the angels in adoration of You. To adore You. To rejoice in You. To acknowledge that it is You from whom all blessings flow. That every good thing flows out from You. And so, Lord, we ask that as we come to the preaching of Your Word, that You would glorify Your name, that You would hide Your servant behind the cross and make Yourself known in this place by the outpouring of Your Holy Spirit in such a way that those who are here would know they have heard from the living God, that they would give praise and honor to You, that they would not go out from this place transformed, that they would cling to You, that they would be who You have intended them to be, that Your saints would be further conformed to the image of Christ. And that those who do not know You would be granted eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, quicken hearts. And Lord, please, do not leave any glory for man. Hide Your servant behind the cross. For You alone are worthy of our praise. These things we we pray in the name of Your Son, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the ongoing challenges for parents is trying to get their children to try new foods. This is something my wife and I have uh, revisited a lot as we've traveled. Uh, I've been on sabbatical and we've gotten to travel to a lot of different places. And, and as we bring new food to our children, there's always a bit of hesitation and anxiety as they look at food that they have never eaten before. And no matter how good it is, it's difficult to get them to try those foods with an open mind. They look at these different things that they've never seen before, bright orange noodles that we had in, uh, while we were up in Canada. 
and uh, even getting my children to eat Zaxby's. My wife is feeling a bit of shame and sorrow at that as, with her southern roots, uh, but uh, we don't have Zaxby's where we are, and so the children were, were apprehensive, let's say. But there's a similar phenomenon for us as the children of God. Just as a parent tells their child, what I am giving to you is good. What I am giving to you is good, and it's tasty, and it's delicious, and it's good for you. It's beneficial for you. And just as our children are, are suspicious of us, so too we see trials like kids see flan or caviar. Even though we are prone to hold our nose and choke it down or try to feed it to the dog under the table. And David calls us in this psalm to examine trial, to examine situations that are unanticipated, circumstances that cause us anxiety, to look at these things and to understand the sovereignty of God and to taste and see that God is good. So I want to deal with our text this morning over the course of several points. If you're taking notes this morning, I have six points. The first is the experience of goodness. The second is promises for the righteous. Third is curses for the wicked. Fourth is Christ prophesied. Fifth is repentance and faith. And sixth, is redefining prosperity. So first we want to look at the experience of goodness. From reading the story of David that your pastor read earlier, at his encounter with Achish at Gath, we wouldn't expect a psalm like this. You read that narrative where David shows up in the city and he realizes the circumstance that he's in, that he's in trial, and, and so he, he feigns madness, right? He lets the, the saliva run down his beard and he scratches at the walls until finally they kick him out. And the reason we have it as Abimelech in our text, by the way, is that's his title. It's kind of like Caesar or Pharaoh. But it's Achish. And Achish would have had quite the grudge against David. Not only had he slain his fair number of Philistines, but he had slain the champion of Gath, Goliath. David actually had Goliath's sword with him when he arrived at Gath. And so we might read through that narrative in 1 Samuel and think of David's escape as a result of his cunning. <coughs> He effectively thought quickly on his feet, and he feigned this insanity. But here, David gives all glory to God, while subtly denouncing his tactic, lest it be imitated. And David boasts only of God, a tactic that we find Paul using, as he quotes Jeremiah in 1 Corinthians one thirty-one. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord... And in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 30 through 33, thank you, we see him reference a similar set of circumstances. And he speaks of how it's not about ingenuity, it's not about man's cunning, it's not about the things that we do, but about God who provides. There he writes, If I must boast, I will boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratus was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So returning to David, he describes himself <coughs> as initially being fearful and distressed when he realized his peril in the hands of the Philistines which is mirrored in that first Samuel account. He calls himself this poor one, meaning that he lacked the strength to deliver himself and was a beggar of God's mercy. So he turns from the destructive fear of man to the productive fear of God. <coughs> I apologize. As Cassiodorus once put it, here is not fear to be feared, but to be loved. 
Human fear is full of bitterness. Divine fear of sweetness. The one drives to slavery. The other allures to liberty. The one dreads the prison of Gehenna. And the other opens the kingdom of heaven. He sought God. David sought God and called upon him with silent prayer. We can imagine David scratching at the door. All the while crying out in his heart to God to deliver him. And God heard that desperate plea. God answered his cries for help and delivered him not only from his distress, but from his fears as well. So from the safety of the cave at Adullam, and more importantly, from the safety of God as his refuge, David kneels before God and blesses him. He praises God with his mouth, and he calls upon the hearer to magnify Yahweh with him. To be sure, we cannot make God greater than he is. And so it's a little weird for us to talk about magnifying God. But as Philip Eveson described it, it's like looking through a telescope, right? When you look through the telescope at the moon, then suddenly it fills the entire field of your vision. You haven't actually made the moon any bigger than it is, but you've brought it into focus in such a way that it obscures everything else. And that's what David's talking about. Magnify God with me. Let us gaze upon God and fixate our attention on him in such a way that he obscures our fears, our terrors, our anxiety about this world. So now we come to the promises for the righteous that are in the course of the psalm. Now, as is common for Hebrew wisdom, literature, and poetry, David gives us the image of the righteous man and the blessings that that man receives in order to show the sure promises of God. So this man seeks God, meaning that he seeks to have a relationship with God, and he seeks guidance from God, and he's willing to submit to that guidance. This righteous man fears God, but he does not fear man. And he takes refuge in God. He is righteous in God's eyes of judgment. It is this man whom God sends his angel to camp surrounding him. It is the righteous man that is rescued. There are multiple promises and accounts of such work for angels for God's people, we see this in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 15 through 17, where the army of angels surrounded the Syrians and that were about to attack Elisha and his servant. It's a beautiful, it's one of those, one of those passages of Scripture that really gets your blood pumping because you see, you know, the servant that's anxious about the Syrian army and he's terrified and he thinks that the end has come and Elisha is just calm and he just prays, Lord, open his eyes. And his eyes are opened and he sees all of the army of God, well, not the whole army of God, but and the whole, this massive army of God that is surrounding the, Sir, the Syrian army. Greater is he that is for us than he that is in the world. In Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In Luke chapter 16, in verse 22, where we look at the narrative of the poor man, right? Lazarus. Lazarus in contrast to the rich man. And it is angels who carry Lazarus into glory. Yet the language of angel of the Lord is often used to describe a unique manifestation of God in space and time prior to Christ's incarnation. Angel means messenger. And one person of the Trinity repeatedly enters time and space as that messenger of the Godhead. And for these theophanies, we can look to passages about the angel who visited Abraham, who visited Jacob, Moses in the burning bush, Joshua on the banks of the Jordan. And this language of the encircling camp would then draw us to God, the image of God's presence as that glory cloud which was a wall between Israel and the Egyptians before crossing the Red Sea in Exodus 14.20. But returning to our psalm, David says this righteous man, this righteous man lacks nothing that is good, that which is good for him. 
As we, saw in Psalm, as we see in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I remember as a kid, whenever I would read that, I just always thought, somehow I'm supposed to not want things anymore. I'm not supposed to desire things anymore. But of course, this is talking about we lack nothing that is good for us. It's one of the most amazing comforts that we have as a Christian is understanding that the sovereign God of all creation, who knows us far better than we know ourselves, and has known us since before the world began, has decreed all things for His glory, but also for our good. That every trial that we undergo is custom-tailored and designed to bring God the most glory and to prepare us best for eternity. That's an incredible thing for us to consider. And it's an incredibly difficult thing for us to remember in the midst of trial. But this is what David is presenting to us, that we lack no good thing. Sure, you and I lack lots of things that we want, things that we desire. But it's an extraordinary thing to sit and contemplate that if I had these things that I desire, at this exact moment, then somehow, in some way that I may not even be able to understand, that would be less glorifying to God and it would be less good for me. It's an extraordinary way for us to examine finances as Christians. But I'm getting away from my notes. God hears the righteous man and God sees him with all of his needs. His bones are not broken. Now, this doesn't mean that a broken bone is necessarily a sign of God's judgment. It doesn't mean that the fact that I've never actually broken a bone that I know of, possibly a little toe with a bed frame, but that's a different story. But just because I've never broken a major bone in my body doesn't mean that I'm more righteous than someone in the congregation who has actually broken a bone. That's not what David is talking about. As one commentator put it, the structure and the strength of the godly man will not be broken. He is redeemed and he is found innocent. But, as we will see, this is not actually an effect, but the cause of everything else. Because he is redeemed, because he is found innocent and declared innocent before God, all of these other things ensue. But we'll get there in a moment. Now we want to just briefly look at the curses for the wicked that are in the passage. In contrast to this righteous one who is seen by God with love and with pity, the wicked are seen with contempt and with judgment. God is going to remove their memory from the earth. Now there are a number of instances where in this life, the glory of the wicked man is often taken away. They are either forgotten or they're only remembered with contempt. It's a fascinating historical study to see the way in which uh, people have said that if Adolf Hitler had died in the late 30s, then he would have been remembered as a hero. Whereas because he went through the entirety of World War II, he, was, he is forever remembered with contempt and with hatred and with anxiety. When we look at these men who are wicked, who pursue after that which is most vile, we see oftentimes how they are remembered only with contempt or their memory is entirely wiped away. That we cannot recall who they are. But the fullness of this, however, is how their memory will be wiped away in the new heavens and the new earth. How their records, their glorious historiography will be locked away with them in the gates of hell. We see that the wicked man is slain by his own evil. Now in other psalms prior to this one, there's often a poetic justice that is described, the way in which their evils revisit them. And it's a narrative that kind of passes through the annals of the Old Testament. We see how certain things turn back upon them. We see how the, how the pharaohs of Egypt threw the infants of the Jewish people into the Nile to have them murdered. And then we see how it is the firstborn of every household that dies in the final plague. We can think about the way in which 
Saul chased David at the end of his sword, never able to actually pierce him. But in the end, Saul fell upon his own sword. There's a kind of poetic justice that God at times displays in his decree. But the fullness of this is how in final judgment, it is their works that condemn them. They are slain by their own evil. When they enter into the depths of hell, it is their work that has placed them there. They have labored diligently for it, and they have accomplished it. And he who hates God's people will be found guilty. This is an important reminder for us. We love to be able to place the wicked man at a distance, but it's important for us to see any ways in which the traces of this are present in us. And there are many alive today who call themselves children of the living God, who declare that they are indeed Jesus' people, that they are part of those who are saved, but despise those who are God's people. And we have to remember that loving Christ and loving His people are interwoven and cannot be separated out. But now we want to look at Christ in the psalm. I've often described reading through the Psalms in terms of when you would go to the doctor as a kid or to the dentist, and you're sitting there in the chair and you're trying to not think about all the terrible things that are going to happen. And so you look around and you find and your two options were pretty much highlights or Where's Waldo? And so you pick up the Where's Waldo book and you flip it open and you look at the page and you know Waldo's there. You haven't found him yet, but you know he's there. That's what reading Psalms is like. Christ's on the page. He's in the psalm, but it sometimes takes a while for us to be able to identify him. Sometimes he shows up in a couple of different places. And we see Christ in this psalm first as the angel of the Lord. He is the one who encircles his elect. He encamps around them to protect them. How does that take place? Because Christ encircles us with his righteous works to rescue us from judgment. Only when we are covered, when we are atoned by Christ's righteousness, can we be found acceptable. When we read of the righteous man that is in our psalm, we should feel how far we fall short. We should read through that and be honest with ourselves and go, am I really the righteous man? Am I really fulfilling all of the things that are here? And if we're honest with ourselves in terms of our own works, we should be able to honestly say, no, I've fallen short of this. I think I've fallen short of this in many ways that others have not. I've failed God's law. I've seen my own wickedness. I've seen my own depravity. I'm not intrinsically the righteous man. We do not merit God's deliverance. We don't merit God's love and care. If my son were to come up to me tomorrow, well, if, if we got home, I should say, all the way back to Arizona, my son comes to me and he says, Dad, I cleaned my room, picked up all the toys, I helped Mom with some work in the yard, I did this, I did that, I did the other. Dad, will you love me now? would break my heart, would devastate me because I would, I would look at my son and I would say, son, I love you. I love you as you are. Don't get me wrong. I delight that you did those things. I'm overjoyed that you went and you helped your mom and you did these things and you obeyed and whatever else. I, I love that you did that, but son, you don't earn my love. I just love you. And that's the relationship that we have through Christ with our Father. He doesn't love us because we did these things. And if you've, if you've raised children, then you're well experienced that oftentimes when your children do things for you, you have to go back and fix them. It's actually generated more work. And oftentimes when we start to really understand our own works before God, we realize that God has to kind of come in after us and fix all of those things too. Look at all these great things I did. God, oh yeah, thanks, son. 
when we understand our place in this, we can find peace and understand we're doing these things out of love, out of joy for our Heavenly Father. We're presenting them, and they're not acceptable because we've done so great. They're only acceptable through Christ. They're only acceptable because they've been done in love. We have to be clothed in Christ through faith. And only then do we find favor in God's sight. And David calls us to taste of the Lord and see that he is good. It's a joy that I get to preach this when we're doing the Lord's Supper. Because what we do symbolically when we partake of this bread and this wine, we also do spiritually. We're fed in soul from Christ for both strength and for joy. When we partake of that bread, we eat that which is a symbol of the basics, what is most fundamental in order for us to have life and continue to move, to have the strength to continue on and persevere. It's the most basic thing. When we talk about a a poor man that steals to feed himself, we don't talk about him stealing caviar or foie gras. We talk about him stealing bread, right? Because it's the most fundamental and basic thing that you need to survive. But when we talk about wine, we talk about that which is a symbol of feasting and of celebration. If you have a grape harvest in the midst of a famine, you don't take all of those grapes and crush them and put them into vats and and wait for them to be bought by Californians. You You don't do that. You, you eat the grapes because you need every, every bit that you can get. And so when we talk about wine, it's that which is a symbol that God has provided. Not only all that is necessary for us to scratch by, but he has provided for us in such a way that we lack nothing that is good. When we partake of this today, we understand that because of Christ's blood, we have that which gives us life, but also that which brings us joy, which makes the heart glad. And we can rejoice in that today. As we see in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 3, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. But of whom can it be more fitly said? The words of our psalm, many are the afflictions of the righteous one. And from those afflictions which were due to us, Christ delivers us by taking them upon himself. And not one of Christ's bones were broken. We read this in Psalm 34, verse 20. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. And the fulfillment for this is in the book of John, in chapter 19, verses 33 through 36. If you want, you can turn there with me, but you don't have to. But in John chapter 19, verses 33 through 36, it says the following. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, and they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For the things, these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Finally, we see that he who hates the righteous one, he who hates Christ, the righteous one of God, will be found guilty. We see this in John chapter 3, verses 18 through 19. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And the last thing from our psalm that we want to see Christ in directly is we see how God delivered Christ in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 21.
Here it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then even Christ has been raised. Not even Christ has been raised. (coughs) And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But now we turn to repentance and faith. You see, David calls us to fear God. But not to fear God in a paralyzing fear. Not where we are frozen in place. It is a fear that is unto repentance. It's a fascinating way in which the, one of the early church fathers described it as the four stages of it, where there's just kind of a, a mindless fear of moralism But then there's a growing consciousness of the way in which there is some kind of authority above. But there is something greater. And the Scriptures use the fear of God at points in this description. Like when Abraham is is talking about... uh, I forget if it's the one with the Pharaoh or not, but where one of the times he passed his wife off as a sister, which is odd that you have to say multiple times with that, but... um, He presents that and he says, well, I thought that there was no fear of God in this place. And there he's not talking about these pagans actually knowing who Yahweh is and all of that. He just, he didn't think that they had any consciousness of a higher power, that they had no consciousness of repercussion for sin. But a lot of humanity does have that to some degree. But then God awakens us to the reality of God, that which... As we stand at the foot of Mount Sinai, we tremble before the law. We realize our unworthiness, our inability to come before God. When God spoke in thunder and lightning and terror and earthquake, God's people cried out for God to stop speaking lest they die. They saw their need for a man to stand between, to stand in the gap between them and God. We have to come to Mount Sinai in that fear in order to progress to Calvary and to see Christ and to love Christ and to understand those things. And so more and more our fear becomes less and less of fear of condemnation, fear of the judgment of God, and more and more it becomes a fear of disappointing the one whom has loved us who has given himself for us, of grieving the perfect bridegroom of our souls. And by moving from Sinai to Calvary, we can finally come to Zion at the end. You see, David calls us to fear God, and he calls us to seek peace and pursue it. Now, it's true that we are to seek peace with our fellow man. Paul speaks of it in Romans 12, 18. As much as is within you, live at peace with all men. But more importantly, we have to be at peace with God. It's a fascinating way in which once we have peace with God, and I'm sure you've seen this play out in your own lives, in which if you, if you lived in the world for a time and a season before your salvation Once you have peace with God, then you're able to have more peace with yourself and you're able to have more peace with your fellow man. There's a peace that kind of flows outward from that, but we have to begin with that. We need to have peace with God. And our sin incurs God's wrath. It deserves condemnation. And it's only by pursuing Christ that we can be reconciled. It's only through Christ that we can find peace with God. Only in Him can peace be found. And this is why 
Paul talks about it as the gospel of peace. Though it's worth noting that just the way that Hebrew is, and it's, uh, it's kind of fun the way that uh, a lot of these Old Testament authors will occasionally play on the language a bit. Or I really should say the way in which the Holy Spirit plays on the language that it's cho- he has chosen to reveal himself through. But you can actually translate that verse as seek peace and pursue him. We see that God is near to the brokenhearted. He will save the contrite, repentant soul. David said in Psalm 51, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. That's us coming in repentance. And then fleeing to God in faith. Take refuge in God, in the God-man, in Christ by faith in his saving work. And when you do that, you are blessed. Not that you will be blessed, but that you are blessed. St. Augustine once said, Thou hast prayed, thou art heard, thou art blessed. This is foolishness to a materialistic world. Prayer for a lot of unbelievers, and I would say even for, uh, instinctually for some believers, still maintains that mentality. I pray to God, and we wouldn't consciously say this, but what's running under the surface, right, is I pray to God because he needs to know that I need these things. I'm going to tell him what I need, and then he's going to finally understand, and, and then if God will just listen to me, I can fix this whole set of circumstances. I'm going to go to God, and I'm going to tell him what the problem is. I'm going to tell him how to solve it, and then he can fix it. He can give me all of the things that I really want and the things that are going to finally make everything flow rightly. But when we come before God, if we are in Christ, whatever the external circumstances may be, we are blessed. And we are to come to God with our petitions. We are to present these things to God. And God does answer prayer. Spurgeon talked about how asking is the rule of the kingdom. Even Christ prayed with petition, and those prayers were answered. But we come with an understanding that God provides, that God gives us what is best for us. God gives us what is needed in our lives. And God redeems the soul of his elect by hiding it within Christ. And so the righteous one rendered righteous The guilty rendered righteous, I should say, will not be found guilty or condemned. God planned redemption in eternity past. God accomplished redemption in Christ on the cross in first century AD. And now he applies it to his saints. Again, referring to some of this language play that the Holy Spirit uses through David. In verse 17, it literally says, Cry out, and Yahweh has heard. From all their distresses, he has delivered them. Cry out, and Yahweh has heard. From all their distresses, he has delivered them. Notice how there's a switch in tense that doesn't really function for us normally. He's commanding you, cry out. And God's already heard. God has already delivered. He has set all of these things in motion. How many times have we seen this in our own lives? We come before God in prayer And then God answers that prayer, but we realize afterward everything was already in motion. This is the amazing, mind-blowing aspect of serving a sovereign God. God answers prayer, but he often answers it before we've actually gotten the words out. Only God can deliver before the cry is made. And now we want to turn to redefining prosperity. David asks us in the psalm, what man delights in long life? or literally lives, and loves days of seeing good. So, with that question in mind, is this psalm a key of next-level thinking to unlocking our best life now with health and wealth and prosperity for victorious Christian living? If we omit enough verses out of the psalm and all the historical context, we can make it sound like it. But the psalm as a whole tells us something different. David doesn't give us direction to a lot of the things that we desire. David does give us direction 
to real prosperity. But at the same time, he demands that we redefine what prosperity means. It's not necessarily long life, but another life beyond this one. Who desires lives? It is to find God as our prosperity. It is have that which is most precious. Augustine once wrote, It is one thing to seek anything from the Lord, another to seek the Lord himself. You ever thought about that when we use that phrasing so often in church? Seek the Lord in prayer. Instead of using God as the divine vending machine where we deposit our good works and we press B1 and expect our candy bar to fall out, actually coming and seeking God as its own ends. C.S. Lewis always talked about how if we have God and we have nothing in this world, then we have everything. But if we have everything that this world has to offer, but we don't have God, we have nothing. David knew many sorrows over the course of his life. It's a little exhausting, to be honest, when you keep revisiting all of David's sorrows, all of his trials. He's always in some kind of trouble, it seems. But he knew God, and that made all the difference. And we can say the same for Paul. In Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39, after describing tremendous sorrows and fierce persecution, David says, or Paul says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So also with Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatsoever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's actually a lot harder to face abundance than it is to face need. It's a lot more challenging to remain righteous in the place where we have abounded than the place where we have been brought low. But I love the way that it reads in the original text where where Paul says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in what I am. Paul knew he was a sinner saved by grace through faith in Christ. And with that, I can be content. Whatever the rest of it may be, I can be content. Because I know I'm loved. I know who I am. And God promises us that our afflictions will be many. In 1 Peter 2.21, we read, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example so that you might follow in his steps. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, there are times when much of the trail ahead of us is obscured. But if we look carefully at the ground below, as Spurgeon said, we can see the footsteps of him who tread before us. We can look before us and see the footprints of Christ and know that he has passed through the valley. But God has also promised that he will deliver us from these trials in his perfect timing. He will deliver us from their evil, from our being permanently broken by them, and that he will use them for his glory, but also for our goods. 1 Peter 5.10 says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To quote Augustine one last time, For that physician is cruel who heareth a man and spareth his wound in putrefaction. And what he's talking about is back in the days before general anesthetics, when you had an infected wound, When the doctor came to remove that infection, the patient tended to holler a fair amount. 
and object to what was taking place. But if he heeded the cries of the man and let the wound continue to grow in its infection, that's not merciful. That's not loving. That's not gracious. It's cruel. What a contrast this is to what we're told in the world, though, isn't it? We're supposed to be accepting. We're supposed to uphold everyone as they are, as what they identify in. But it's cruel. It's actually cruel. Because this is what God does for us. He scours the world. And yeah, we scream and holler at all of these things. We object to what is taking place. We inform God in our prayers of what we think would be a better course of action. But at the end of the day, we have to submit and understand that God loves us. And he loves us perfectly. Even when we're being chastised, the hardest blow that he ever lays upon us is done in perfect love. And we have to understand that this is what God does for the people that he loves. And he will deliver us from our fears unto peace. If we fix our gaze on him, like the apostles in the, in the book of Acts, we can sing even when we're in shackles. David tells us, keep your tongue from evil, from evil deceits, and trust God with the outcome. Spurgeon once said, clean and honest living conversation By keeping the conscience at ease promotes happiness, but lying and wicked talk stuffs our pillow with thorns and makes life a constant whirl of fear and shame. We often think that we know better, but we need to just serve and follow God. And in tasting of Him, in tasting of Christ, you will see that He is good. Taste His providence and sense the good therein. Taste of God's words and internalize it. Like Isaiah eating the scroll. This language is found in Hebrews 6.5, speaking of those who have tasted of the goodness of the word of God. Peter directly quotes our psalm in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. <clears throat> Here he writes, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So that's the quote. And then he interprets it and says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. What an extraordinary calling this is. But finally, I want to take you back to verse 5. If you're in, if you're still in Psalm 34, you can look there at the verse. But in verse 5 here in the ESV, it's translated as, Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. So David tells us that God's people have looked to him and they shone and will never be ashamed. In Exodus 34, 29, we see how Moses' face shone after he spoke with God. Paul references this in 2 Corinthians 3.18 and says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. To know God, to gaze upon God in Christ through repentance and in faith is to be transformed. Now, our faces may not literally emit light unless you've recently been to Chernobyl. But if you've seen Christ by faith, if you take that time to gaze upon Christ in faith, it will emanate from you. It's amazing how 
there are certain pastors that Nick and I have interacted with where you just, you're humbled, but you also feel like you're slightly more holy for having hung out with them for a while. Nick doesn't say that about me, but there are pastors that we hang out with. That, I mean, you spend that time and you just feel, you feel humbled, but you feel like you've been drawn closer to God. Because these men just emanate Christ. They glow with a joy and a peace and a satisfaction because that's all that they look at. That's where their eyes are fixated. They understand that they have one foot in heaven. John Knox on his deathbed spoke of how he had already been in heaven. He wasn't talking about some bizarre charismatic experience. He was talking about his prayer life. He was talking about his time with God's people. He says, I've, I've been in heaven. I've got one foot there. I'm about to get the other foot there. And it'll be a whole lot better then. When we partake of this table together today, we're going to taste of heaven by faith. When we come before the Lord in prayer of petition, we're carried up into the treasury and into the armory of heaven to be, to be prepared for battle. And to be given that which is necessary for that which lies ahead. But when we come to this table, we're brought to the wedding feast of the Lamb. We taste just enough to whet the appetites, to make us long for that eternity, but to give us enough to keep us going. To know God in Christ is to be transformed. There should be joy and peace that surpasses all understanding. People should see it in your life. They should hear it in your voice, in the praise of God from your mouth. So let us all say together as brothers and sisters in Christ, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt His name together.